And uh, we're now looking at Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. Uh, Luke 4, 1 to 13. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. Then he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. And this is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would uh, speak to us today, Lord. You know the hearts of everybody here. Um, you know what distracts us, what weighs on us, what temptations we face. And we pray, Lord, that your Spirit would take your word and use it to transform our hearts, to rewire our hearts so they look more and more like Jesus's. Uh, Father, we ask that you would do su something supernatural here as we've gathered to worship you. And so we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, when I was uh, finishing my basement, I needed to run uh, some new electrical wires to a new AC and, and heating unit that would heat all of our basement. And this required me running thick six-gauge wire, some of that thickest wire that I was trying to have the kids cut, uh, which I'd never worked with wires that thick before. In addition to costing you know, several hundred dollars just for 50 feet of it, uh, it is incredibly uh, difficult to work with and to bend and to get pushed into you know, an electrical box and stuff like that. And it is also incredibly difficult to cut. Uh, I had my normal wire strippers that worked great for the you know, 12 and 14 gauge wires you use for your outlets and your lights. And then I had a little bigger pair of pliers with some wire cutters on them that had always worked for anything else I needed. But when I took those pliers to that thick six gauge wire, I would squeeze my hands and it looked a lot like the kids up here. Nothing would happen no matter how hard I would squeeze. And I tried a couple different strategies and I squeezed harder and instead of the wire uh, cutting, the pliers started to twist and bend and I was soon gonna bruise my hands if I tried much harder. I tried some other things and I soon realized that there is no way that these pliers or my hands are gonna survive cutting all of these thick wires. So I bought a heavy duty pair of lineman's pliers and it was so satisfying to put the, the wire in there and just watch it cut through it like butter. My original pliers crumpled 
before the strength of that six-gauge copper wire. They just weren't up for the job. And I think there's something maybe similar that we feel, and that applies to our passage. When you're facing temptation, when you're fighting an addiction, whether it's old sins or bad habits, does it kind of feel like you're a cheap pair of Walmart pliers trying to fight against this thick steel wire? Do you crumple in the face of temptation? Do you feel like no matter how hard you try, it doesn't make any difference in what you desire? Do you long to change certain things in your life, but you feel helpless to change them? Are you stuck in certain sins that you know aren't good, but it is kind of like junk food for your soul? You know it's bad for you, but it feels so good. Uh, St. Augustine, who was this North African Christian who lived some 1,600 years ago, very much more like us than you would imagine, he struggled with sexual sin his entire life, and he prayed to God, give me chastity and continence, God, but not yet. And why? Well, he goes on. He says, of God, for I was afraid that you would answer my prayer immediately and cure me too soon of that disease of lust, which I wanted satisfied, not extinguished. And I think that's probably at the root of so many of our sins that we struggle with, whether it's a love of money or alcohol or lust or winning or recognition So often we say, I know I shouldn't do this, but if you dig down deep enough, you realize, actually, I don't really want to be cured of the desire for these things. I want these things to be satisfied. And we're in our series through the book of Luke called The King Has Come, and one of the things we're going to see in our passage is that Jesus is the true king because he is the one who is actually powerful enough to stand up to temptation and to evil and conquer it. So often the opposite happens, right? We get conquered by that temptation. But Jesus is strong enough to save us. And I just very simply want us to walk through the story here, and then we'll draw out some applications from it at the end. Jesus now is about to begin his public ministry. And last week we saw him getting baptized by John the Baptist. And this week, right after that, we see him going out into the wilderness for 40 days for a long camping trip, a long backpacking trip, except he's not bringing any food with him. He's fasting during this time and spending additional time praying. And while he was out there, he faced a number of temptations, uh, which if you've ever been out in the wilderness for long, you know there's all kinds of things that you long for, all kinds of temptations that you face as you long for the comforts and ease of home and wonder, why exactly am I doing this? But it would be a mistake to think that this was the only time that Jesus was tempted. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. So if Jesus was tempted in every way, I think we can say that at every stage of Jesus' life, from when he was a kid to a tween, to a teenager, to in his 20s, to now in his 30s, he was tempted. And then at every facet of his life, the things that you struggle with, Jesus also struggled with. He was tempted in those ways. The difference is that all of the temptations that Jesus faced came from outside of him because he didn't have sin inside him. 
Whereas most of our temptation, or a lot of our temptation, right, is maybe spurned on by things from the outside, but also arises from inside our hearts. Now, if Jesus continually faced temptation in his career, in his life, why does Luke give us such detail about this particular temptation? Why is this temptation unique? And I think we get an answer if we look at some of the details. Notice, where does this temptation take place? In the wilderness. And notice, how long is Jesus out in the wilderness? For 40 days. Now, do those details ring any bells of other Bible stories? Well, if you remember the book of Exodus, what happened there? God's people wandered through where? The wilderness for a period of 40 years. To make the parallels even stronger, if you remember back to our sermon series through Exodus, which was a couple of years ago, when we looked at Israel crossing the Red Sea, one of the things that I said is that the way that that is presented and understood in Scripture is that when Israel walked through the Red Sea and passed through those waters, it was called their baptism. And then what did Israel do after being baptized through the Red Sea? They went into the wilderness. And what do we see happen with Jesus? Right before this, what Wes preached on last week, Jesus was baptized, and now he's going into the wilderness for 40 days. See, Luke here is portraying the beginning of Jesus' ministry through the lens of the beginning of Israel's journey to the Promised Land. Jesus is recreating, re-walking Israel's footsteps. But in all the ways that they failed, Jesus is going to succeed. The wilderness so often got the best of the Israelites. It caused them to regret leaving Egypt and long to go back to there. Why? Because, man, the food was so good back there. There was a lot of water for us back there. But every place where they failed, Jesus was faithful and did not fail and fall into temptation. And hunger was one of those primary struggles that Israel had when they were wandering through the wilderness. And it was no different for Jesus. And I love how verse 2 states what is the obvious. He ate nothing, and at the end, he was hungry. (laughs) Now, I think Luke puts this thing, which is so obvious, to remind us that Jesus was truly human. He wasn't an android that was actually running on solar power, so the desert, you know, was no problem for him. His stomach growled. He knew what it was like to be hungry. He knew what it is like to, to long for food and to have your mouth dry because you haven't had water for several hours in the desert. And while there's a number of temptations he faced in the desert, in the wilderness, The climax of those temptations are what we have here. It comes at the end of those 40 days when he is most hungry. All of you know it's a bad idea to go shopping when you're hungry, right? To go grocery shopping when you're hungry. The only thing worse than going grocery shopping when hungry is going to Costco when you're hungry because there you don't just buy an extra you know, bag of chips and a soda, you buy a 10-pound bag of cinnamon bears and a whole case of chips. Don't ask me how I know. When we're hungry, we are susceptible to all kinds of temptation. And it's the same for Jesus. And the devil, who Scripture tells us is the craftiest one of all, knows that. He knows when we're at our weakest. He knows when it's hardest. He knows those things that we want. 
And so that's that opportune time. The devil comes, and he tells Jesus, if you're the Son of God, tell these stones here to become bread. And this phrase, if you're the Son of God, should also ring a bell for us, because it's right before this that we looked at last week, where what happens when Jesus is baptized, remember there's that voice from heaven, and it says, Luke 3.22, you are my Son, God the Father says, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Those are, at least according to Luke, the last words that Jesus heard from his Father. You're my son. And now the devil is casting doubt on those words. Are you really the son that God loves? Because I'm looking at you right now, and it sure doesn't look like it. The Spirit, we are told, led Jesus into the wilderness. But he was led by God into the wilderness. It's not like Jesus, as he was facing these trials and temptations in the wilderness, could have said, sometimes like you think, if, if things go bad in your life, wait, did I make a mistake in moving out here? Did I make a mistake in doing this? Maybe this isn't what God wanted me to do, because all I've had is trouble. But you see, Jesus didn't go out there on his own. He was led by the Spirit to there. And he was led into all kinds of hardship. God led him into suffering. Now, depending on how much mobile food storage somebody has on them, uh, they can live for one to two months without eating anything else. And your body will, you know, first eat your fat stores, and then after that, it will start to eat itself, eat your muscles and other parts of your body to get energy to keep more important parts of your body running, like at the heart and the brain. And for many people, that you know, where the body starts to eat itself happens within one to two weeks of no food. And so the devil comes to Jesus when he hasn't eaten and his face is gaunt. Every rib on him is visible. He's filthy from being out there. His hair and his beard is starting to fall out because he's lacked nourishment. His skin is crusty and burnt from being under that hot sun. And the devil just looks at him and says, are you sure you're the son of God? Because if you were, I would think you'd have a lot better life than you do right now. Do you really think God loves you? And see, in that temptation, isn't that the very same temptation that we all struggle with? Does God love me? Because based on what is happening in my life, it sure doesn't feel like it. If God loves me, why can't I get a break? Why is it every time I catch my breath, another wave sweeps over me? And we hear that voice in the back of our head saying, you know, probably God doesn't really love you that much. He maybe doesn't have your best intentions at heart. Maybe you should stop trusting him and just take things into your own hands. This temptation is so subtle. I mean, picture Jesus there. No one's around. He has the power to do this. What would be the harm in getting a little food for myself? I mean, I need to eat. No one's going to see this. And yet, what does Jesus say in reply? Man shall not live by bread alone. Now, this verse is often misinterpreted as if people think that Jesus is somehow saying that, oh, if you're, if you're a Christian, you don't need food or bread. If you have enough faith, God will just give those things to you. No, Jesus doesn't say man doesn't live on bread. He says, 
We don't live on bread alone. It means physical nourishment is certainly necessary. We need to eat. That's how God made us. Jesus would eventually die if he didn't eat. But he's saying it's not sufficient for life. You need something more than just bread to live. And yet what is interesting is that Jesus says this when it seems that his greatest need would probably be bread, right? I mean, there's other things you need, but Jesus, you haven't eaten for 40 days. Bread has got to be on the top of the list of the things that you need. And yet, it's when Jesus' ribs are visible and his face is emaciated, that is when he says, man does not live on bread alone. And why is that? I think he's showing us here that more important than having your physical needs satisfied in this moment is trusting God to provide for you and to trust God's path to provide for you than to just take things into your own hands and take care of yourself. To trust God's path for your life, even when it's led you to not eat for 40 days. We can imagine that temptation for Jesus. We can imagine at least a little bit. Jesus, who had, could do supernatural things, and he could say, why should I go on denying myself when I could use some of my own power to my own, just not even benefit, but just survival? But in doing that, He would not be following his father's will to deny himself and to trust God's provision, to trust God's direction, even when it's really hard. And what that means for you and I is that wherever you are, even if it's really hard, even if it feels like you're wandering around in a wilderness with no way out, even if where you are is because of your own mistakes and your own sins and you got yourself into that mess, there is still an aspect that where you are is also where God has planned for you to be and he has not forgotten you, he has not forsaken you, he is not just leaving you to figure it out on your own, but he knows your need and he's teaching you to trust him that even when you think the most important thing I need is to eat today, He wants you to realize that he is the source of all food and he will provide for you. And to trust him more than your own ability to make bread, whether it's from stones or from from, uh, flour. God is your provider. He made you. He knew as Jesus' hair started to fall out because he hadn't eaten, he knew exactly how many hairs had fallen out of Jesus' head. He knew exactly how many calories he'd lost and pounds he'd lost. And he knew exactly how to provide for him and care for him. And he'll do the same for you even when it's hard. You see, will you trust God to care for you? Or will you trust God only as long as you can understand how he's going to care for you? Will you trust God when you see, oh, I can see how this will work out? Well, really, you just trust in yourself. Or will you trust God when it looks like there's nowhere, no way out? 
And then you fall, oh, I better take care of this myself. And that's what Jesus is getting at. Man does not live by bread alone. Well, the next the devil takes Jesus up to this high place and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world, right? He, he says, look at this vast empire. And he says, I can give it all to you if you just worship me. And notice how crafty the devil is here because he's offering Jesus. Why did Jesus come to earth? Well, he came to earth in one sense to be crowned the king of creation. That's his role. He was going to be inaugurated as the king over all things. And here the devil says, oh, you can have that. And guess what? I'll give you a shortcut. You know, God's path is for you to kind of go downhill and find a cross and suffer there. And then you can be crowned king. I'll just let you be crowned king. You can just bypass the cross and bypass all that suffering. And you can have it right now. And Satan says, I'll give it to you. And he, there's a half-truth in his words when he says, it's been given to me. Scripture calls Satan the prince of this world. Satan so often takes half-truths and spins them so they sound like full-truths. <coughs> and here again, he offers Jesus a way to obtain what God sent him to get, but to do it in a way that it won't hurt so much. And again, isn't this the core of so many temptations that you and I face? Why has following God led me to greater suffering? I just want an easier path. And Satan says, oh yeah, there's an easier path. You just have to give your heart to me. Bend your knee to me. But Jesus responds, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. You know, God doesn't care that much about what you can achieve for him. He cares that your heart is his, that you're following his paths. You're doing it his way. Satan offered a similar result, but the path was way different. There have been so many people like this. So many of us, we struggle with this. You could do great religious things. You could win the world for God. But God doesn't care about that because he sees your heart and realizes you're all wrapped up in yourself. He doesn't need you to do anything. He wants you to follow his path, his heart, to worship him alone. God's plan for Jesus would result in the destruction of Satan. Now Satan is saying, here, here's a truce we can have. You can get what you want, and I'll get to keep what I want. But God wants you to trust his way, his path, even when his path runs right through a cross. And then lastly, the devil leads him up to Jerusalem, where Jesus stands at the highest point of the temple, and he asks that question again, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, and the, the angels will take care of you. you know, in each temptation, Jesus responds by quoting scripture. And so again, we see how crafty the devil is. So he starts taking some of his own scripture and quotes it to Jesus to give justification. Oh, this would be okay for you to do. He quotes a passage from Psalm 91 that describes how God will care for his people. God won't let you stumble. God will send his angels to protect you. A stone won't even strike your foot. And again, we 
struggle with this very same thing where you wrestle with, well, I guess it wouldn't be too bad to do this. In fact, I can see some scriptures say, oh yeah, God will take care of me even if I do this. But you're trusting scripture. And the temple was a very busy place. People are always coming and going throughout. And so this would have been a great way. Jesus is about to start his ministry. Right? And I mean, just recently, we see all these recent spate of all these presidential announcements, right? And everybody wants to do something that makes a splash, that garners media attention. What a great way for Jesus to make his messianic announcement than by jumping off the highest point of the temple in front of everybody and then have angels come down and, you know, carry him down to right in front of the temple. That would get people's attention. Much better to be carried on angels' wings than to ride on a donkey. But Jesus again knows that's not God's way. I need to deny myself. I need to become God's type of Messiah, not what the people want, not play to the people's passions, but to trust God's path even when it's harder. And so Jesus responds, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Well, then how does all this apply to us? What does it mean for us? Two things. First, Jesus is strong enough to save you. Jesus is strong enough to rescue you. Each of the times that Jesus quotes from Scripture, if you looked up the cross-references, you would realize he's quoting from the book of Deuteronomy every single time. And that, where he's quoting from in Deuteronomy is when Moses is telling the story of the Israelites traveling through the wilderness. Jesus here is reenacting the Israelites' journey, and every one of Satan's temptations and in some way is getting at the things that the Israelites failed at. But in every way that the Israelites failed, Jesus succeeds. And it's the same for you and I. In every way that you fail in temptation, Jesus is faithful. Every way that you are not strong enough to combat those addictions and those things that you struggle with, Jesus is strong enough. And at the same time, though, we see not just this recreation of walking Israel's journey, we see echoes of another temptation. I don't think it's an accident that if you look right before this, how does chapter 3 end? It says, it's giving Jesus' family tree, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And I don't think it's an accident that Adam is placed right before our passage. That our passage has echoes of that very first temptation in the Garden of Eden. God's first son, Adam, was a representative for all of history, that his actions would have implications for every person that came after him. And so Satan, back in the Garden of Eden, was crafty. He knew, if I can get Adam to fall, all of humanity will fall with him, because they're all his descendants. They all come from him. He's representing them. And so Satan comes to Adam in the garden to lure him into sin. And what is his strategy? Well, it doesn't involve, you know, the scandalous things that make the news. There's no sex or money or drugs. He does the very same thing he did with Jesus. He puts doubt in Adam and Eve's mind. Does God really love you? Does God really have your best interests at heart? 
Because there's this tree right here with really good-looking fruit that I'm sure is incredibly tasty. And why would God put it right in the middle of the garden if he doesn't want you to have it? And guess what? It will give you a greater life than what you have right now. And what's standing between you and that greater life? It's God. It's the very same temptation. And that temptation is at the root of every sin that you and I struggle with. Will I trust that God's path is best, even though it's hard, even though it means denying myself, even if it means I can't have this really great fruit that's going to give me a better life, that promises to give me a better life than I have right now? And what do we do? We doubt God's plan. We doubt that his rules are good for us. We doubt that he cares for us. We think he's the one that's keeping us down. And says, so I'm going to take things into my own hand, and I'm going to do what's best for me. Herman Bovink writes, the organizing principle of sin is self-glorification, self-divination. A person wants to be an I, either without next to, or in the place of God. You say, that's what the root of every sin is, right? We tend to think of sins as kind of this list of bad things you shouldn't do, right? Don't, uh, what does Southern Baptist say? Don't drink or smoke or, grow, or chew or go with girls who do, right? We think that's what a sin is. Now, what is sin is self-glorification, living for your own glory, not trusting that God is greater than you, not putting him at the center of your life. And anything that puts you at the center or you beside God, that's what sin is. And that's why people, some of us, you chase drugs or illicit sex, too much alcohol. Because in those moments, it's kind of like that fruit in the garden. Tasting that thing gives you a sense that you're way bigger than you actually are. It gives you a sense of glory, a sense of being like God. But it's also why you can live just a very good, middle-class life, be a good neighbor, your yard looks great, and you're just as lost as that other person because you're doing it all for your own glory, because you love the recognition that you get when you're doing everything great. You can come to church and you can be told, oh, you're a son or daughter of God. But what happens three hours later, you're wondering if that's true, why does my life hurt so much? And there's this thing, whatever it is, whatever, pick your poison, that, you know, if I do that, if I indulge in that, if I have that, it seems to take away the pain better than God does. But Jesus didn't waver in that moment. He didn't buckle. He would trust that his father's plan was best for him, even when that plan led him right to a humiliating death on the cross. He would love his father with his entire heart, even when, from our perspective, every indication was that his father had long forsaken him. But Jesus didn't doubt. He said, Father, I will still give my life into your hands. And that is why your hope, your only hope in this world to fight evil, to overcome temptation, to be made right with God is found in Jesus. Because Jesus wasn't just following in Adam's footsteps. He wasn't just following in Israel's footsteps. He was also living your life 
that you could never live. He was living his life for you. So that in every single way where you fall and have failed and will fall again, Jesus was perfect. There is not a moment of your life that his life has not covered. There is not a failure that you have given into that his faithfulness has not forgiven. And he has given every moment of his life to cover you, to make you whole, and to let you come into his family. And the second thing I want you to see is that you now have the power to fight temptation because of Jesus. Remember what Augustine said when he was wrestling with his sexual temptations? He said, I was afraid that you'd answer my prayer at once and cure me too soon of that disease of lust, which I wanted satisfied, not extinguished. And I think the reason that we choose any sin is because at some level, it feels more satisfying than God does in that moment. It feels more pleasurable than God. And so the way to fight sin in your life is you need to get those wires in your heart rewired. Sin mixes them all up, right? It creates these paths, and they're deep paths. They're paths that are hard to change between these sinful tendencies we have and what feels good. And they're way tougher to move around than six-gauge wire. You aren't strong enough to do it. You don't have tools big enough to cut it. But you see, when you trust in Jesus, his spirit comes into your life, and the spirit that allowed him to face temptation is the same spirit that now is at work rewiring your heart, making those connections so that what is good becomes your delight. What is your duty becomes your delight. To put faith in Jesus connects you to the power of God in your heart. And how do you open yourself up to that type of work? Well, it's through faith in Jesus, but then secondly, it's through meditating on God's word. His word is not dead, but it's like a living blueprint for what your heart should look like. It's like the design diagram for how all those wires are supposed to be. And his word, when overlaid on your heart and meditated on it and worked through the spirit, begins to make those wires line up with his intention so that you will start to taste and see that the Lord is good. You will start to experience that at his hand are pleasures forevermore, that you will see that he has a satisfaction that is so deeper than all these other fake things that you're chasing after. God's word is powerful. I mean, imagine, think of all the things that Jesus could have relied on to fight this temptation, right? He could have disappeared. He could have, you know, called angels to, you know, get Satan out of here. He could have zapped Satan. He could have done all kinds of things, but what does Jesus do instead? He does something so ordinary. It's something that every single one of you could do. He turns to God's word, And if the Son of God, who had the power of all creation, turned to his word in the moment of temptation, how much more should you be turning to God's word to have your heart made aright? It's God's word through the power of the Spirit that has the ability to rewire your heart and to start to give you new taste buds to realize all this stuff that I've been feeding on is junk food. 
and to give you a taste for what is lasting and enduring. And one day, God will complete that work in you. Stay on the journey. Don't give up. Have that long obedience in the same direction. And there's going to be a day when God has completed that work and he's made that whole renewal for the entire world. God will turn almost. I love walking around Salt Lake right now in the foothills because these dry deserts have what? Are blooming with wildflowers. And you see, that is what God is going to do in the world and in your life. Isaiah 35 says it. Those who have been ransomed by the Lord will return. They will enter Jerusalem singing, crowned with everlasting joy. Sorrow and mourning will disappear, and they will be filled with joy and gladness. And brothers and sisters, that's your destiny through Christ. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to to realize all of the junk food we've been feeding on, to finally acknowledge how powerless we are to make the change we know we should, but honestly don't really want to make in our life. We're addicted to all kinds of sins. We feel a little sad at the thought of them going away forever. And it just shows us, Lord, how messed up and twisted all of our hearts are. We thank you that Jesus is powerful enough to save. And he can rewire our hearts. And we pray that he would do that now. In Christ's name, amen.